you know, I think first of all, I mean, I do support I know, decriminalization and access to medicine, uh, however we may see fit as far as in the home or out in the forest or at a concert or whatever, but also recognizing these are very powerful medicines and especially for psychedelically naive people that we really need safe, well-structured access. This is Field Tripping, a podcast dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. David Bronner is the CEO of Dr. Bronner's Magic Soaps. And by CEO, I don't mean chief executive officer. I mean cosmic engagement officer. And after listening to this interview, you'll understand why. Dr. Bronner's makes organic soap and personal care products that you'd recognize from store shelves and that have been used in homes across North America for generations. His grandfather, Emmanuel Bronner, founded the producer in the 1940s, and it continues to be run by members of the family today. The business produces socially and environmentally responsible products, and through it, David has become an activist who's donated millions to important causes like fair trade, regenerative farming, schooling, rural women's health, plastic pollution, and of course, access to psychedelic healing. But look beyond the suds, foam, and family tree, and you'll encounter a special individual who's truly trying to build a better world and make sure we don't leave a big mess behind. David is the perfect guest to join us for the last episode of 2020, and he shares some of his passions, cosmic principles, and of course, a few epic trips. Welcome to Field Tripping, David. Thanks for having me. Let's hop right into it. You and I were chatting last week and we started down the conversation. I think I had asked you about how you kind of got into the psychedelic sphere. You're definitely one of the most vocal advocates for psychedelic renaissance that's happening right now and and certainly one of the biggest donors from a philanthropic perspective to advancing drug reform and advancing the cause of legal access to psychedelics, at least for therapeutic uses. Tell me where this all came from. I've had, uh, I think like everybody in this field, some very profound and powerful life-changing experiences. Growing up, I was raised Christian. My granddad's Jewish. When he came to the States, I mean, it's a long story, but he came over in 29 for, you know, the dimensions of Hitler and Nazism were, were apparent more just out of generational clashes with his dad and uncles who were running a soap business there and wanting to forge his own path. He uh, was increasingly desperate to get his family out. His two sisters got out. His parents, like a lot of bourgeois Jews, stayed till it was too late. The factory was Aryanized and they were deported and killed shortly after. And um, my grandmother, my dad's mom, died when he was really young. So my granddad's wife was in and out of the hospital and died in, I think, 44. So he was going through just immense tragedy. And his answer to this or his response was to intuit and have, I think, some pretty mega spontaneous mystical experiences of the, of the light and love, the, the essential mystical heart beating in the center of all faith traditions. And when they're not making idols out of their beliefs and, and demonizing each other, that they're all pointing at the same transcendent mystery of love and source energy. And that in the, a nuclear armed world, the next Holocaust, if we don't realize our transcendent unity across religious and ethnic divides, uh, we're going to all perish. And he felt very called on this mission to uh, proselytize and, and went around the countries, sermonizing and selling his family's Castile soaps on the side. And word got out that this is pretty gosh darn dang good soap. People started coming to just get the soap rather than hear what he had to say. 
and he started putting his message on the bottle. And that's like the famous Dr. Bronner's label. It's basically a, the one true religion I love at the heart of all faith traditions. And he's trying to show how Jesus and Moses and Muhammad and Buddha are all kind of on the same wavelength. So my granddad basically put his kids in foster homes to go while he went out on his mission and financially supported them and checked in once in a while, but was pretty absent. And my dad had a lot of anger, uh, you know, basically associated the kind of cosmic vision my granddad with with bailing on his parental responsibilities. So my dad was more or less atheist growing up, which I didn't know till I actually rejected my Christian faith at the age of 13. But, you know, at the age of 13, you know, I was questioning. I was like, you know, if God so loved the world, why do you send his one only son to the one spot? What about the Chinese and other planets and stuff? But then in, in college, uh, I was a biology major at Harvard. I was playing football and rugby and going to the bars and drinking. But, you know, some point in my sophomore year, I just started realizing how much better it was to just hang out and smoke cannabis with my, my roommates, listen to music, have way high vibrating conversations. And, you know, it's just way better. And, you know, and just starting to really question, you know, like, how could we possibly be making marijuana illegal and, and alcohol legal? I mean, it's just not, no question what's better. So, you know, starting to really question authority. And as a biology major, I was kind of getting downloaded this kind of implicit reductionistic worldview and in my philosophy classes as well, and postmodern relativism, but human consciousness is basically epiphenomena of evolutionary and physical processes. And it's not that interesting. And, you know, I was like, well, what about what made those processes? You know, so I was kind of primed for my first mushroom experience in junior year. And I remember just looking down at my arm and thinking, you know, what does it mean at a quantum level that I'm not different from the world and just like one continuous energy? Like I'm like a river of energy and I'm not even the same stuff like month to month or blood or water. And that I'm in this dynamic interchange and flow and cycle with the world out there. And, and it's not dead or whatever. It's, it's alive and I'm part of it. So after college, I was in Amsterdam. I had a Euro pass, but once I got to Amsterdam, I intersected the 95 cannabis cup. And this is like the epicenter of cannabis culture. So I was in the squat with this international cast of like activists and, and artists. And, and it was just such a dope scene and it was going really deep. And I was just like having some really powerful experiences. Well, I'll tell a story like in my squat were, were a couple of hippie vegetarian cats and they were part of a church in Arkansas that had been formed our church in 1993 with cannabis as a sacrament and as a first amendment challenge to the drug war. And of course, in 1993 in Arkansas, that wasn't going to work out. And they got busted up. And these guys were facing 10 years of life if they stepped step foot back in the U.S. And, you know, and I started to just realize, like, you know, what kind of country would do this? You know, what the hell? And, and you know, just really waking up to the drug war being an, an important sense of religious war and a sacrament of our people. And that these psychedelics and cannabis are what can help wake us up and make us better and solve the world's problems. You know, it's, this is not the problem. But the mega, mega experience was it was in Amsterdam. I was in a gay trans club at a crisis point of my then relationship. Things came to a head in medicine space and LSD and MDMA. And my girlfriend at the time, who then became my wife, we were at this crisis point. I realized in medicine that, you know, whatever it was I had on my side, it was really all about me being jealous and stupid and petty and my partner had traveled in Asia for nine months and had these incredible 
experience is really deep and profound and had to come back and I was basically jealous and not unconsciously and just all these kind of death by a thousand cuts it kind of cut her down and and just it seemed so clear and, and in the medicine it was like her arrows and her force and her life in Asia like just being so beautiful and erotic and, and expressing life in its purest beauty and, and compassion and you know it's like dude better you die than be in her way in her light and as I like died her light just exploded and just embraced me in an infinite love and forgiveness instantly like bam realizing that Everything I was doing to her in, in medicine, it was really my own soul. Like, I, like all, and it's kind of like a lot what you do to others, you do to yourself. And that I was in the way of my own own soul expressing and being and loving and being awesome. And so, in this experience, so I come out, you know, of the light and the love. I mean, it's just like the heart chakra blew open. I'm in the light, and you know, I come out and like instantly, like, oh my god, my granddad's totally right. You know, this is the transcendent love and light at the heart of reality and. Um, this is what all the faith traditions are pointing at. And I'm like, but wait a minute, you know, okay, God. So that's awesome. But, you know, we're dancing here at the club and there's like rape and there's murder. and There's all this horrible shit right now, like happening. Like, what's up? And then I'm microscoped into nothing. And there's like the self of all, like beyond, you know, just all of creation and all of life. But then I saw Jesus with his back to me, just kind of stepping in all calm and compassionate and just like kind of not, not complaining, not trying to explain it, just stepping in. And I was like, man, I want to be like that. I want to be, I want to get down. I want to serve Then I'm not Christian or, you know, I'm, I mean, I, obviously it's a very important part of me and dimension in some ways I am, but also every other faith tradition. And um, I feel the divine will show up in whatever way is most appropriate when we're ready. In your uh, medicine experiences, it sounds like you've had incredibly mystical experiences, but it also sounds like, you know, through your grandfather and grandfather's experience and your father's experience, you know, there's probably a lot of things that have come down in terms of your your path to healing or, or your journey on healing. Has, has anything along those lines kind of come up for you? You know, you touched on it a little bit, just wondering if in your experience, like what kind of healings have come up other than being aware of the mystical elements of the universe. Well, it's the time when I first started like really intentionally engaging with medicine. You know, I'd had kind of would say accidentally done some pretty deep work or, or had mega experiences, but not really with intention. You know, and I'd say in the last like, yeah, five years have been really kind of more intentional on the medicine path. And yeah, just experienced some really profound insight the decision to end that marriage and be with my new partner. I mean, just a lot of struggle. And then just getting to the you know, heart chakra blown open and just the healing force of love and feeling that. And then after my marriage, I mean, that was, you know, it's some of the most painful thing anybody can go through is obviously the dissolution of a long time marriage. And especially when there's so much love after, you know, my kid now 23 and we're pretty much all healed up and, and amazing, but you know, didn't want to talk to me for like over a year. But I remember going deep in medicine, did an LSD blindfold really deep. It's important to like remember and, and that like if you're on your path and you're being truthful to yourself, it's like people can be hurt by your actions, but you're not hurting them. And there's an important distinction and it's hard to let yourself even receive that saying like, I know this hurts you, 
but I'm doing the right thing. And that can be hard to reconcile sometimes, but it sounds like in that moment is kind of like just letting go of all the hurt and then all the energy and knowing that not only are you now on your right path, but very much in the same way, you know, if you're being truthful, they're on their right path. Because if you continue to be in something that you don't want to be in and, and you don't say it, you're controlling, you know, you're, you're lying to them by omission and uh, that's not, not fair to them and it's not fair to you, but it's not always easy to let that in and let that sink deep. Would love to hear about your evolution from being, I guess, were you the president or, or chief executive officer to being the cosmic engagement officer? Tell me, uh, tell me about how that kind of evolution happened and what exactly do you do as a cosmic engagement officer other than, you know, talk this stuff with people like me. You know, after Amsterdam, I mean, I actually moved back here to sell all my stuff, to move back to Amsterdam to plants and be a cannabis activist. And, you know, I would have in a whole other life been a cannabis entrepreneur, but that didn't work out. And I came back and was uh, a mental health counselor in the Boston Waltham area before kind of getting to a point in my life where I realized, well, if a company like Dr. Bronner's would offer me a job, I'd go for it in a second. And, you know, let my dad know, actually, I was ready to come in right before he was uh, diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. But anyway, so my brother uh, was in a similar boat to me. He had two years younger. He absolutely didn't want to work with his brother. I mean, that's definitely the one thing he knew. But, I, you know, after a couple of years of Bronner's, I was like, Mike, you got to get in here, man. So I convinced him to come in in uh, 2000. And, you know, I guess long, long story short, he, he's crushing. He's just been crushing it for a long time. And it was clear, like, uh, over five years ago, maybe about five years ago, it was like past time that he became president and he knew that I didn't want to be CEO. You know, it's kind of dumb. You know, I'm not CEO. So, he, so I promoted him president. He promoted me to cosmic engagement officer. I'll tell you like one, uh, an, another awesome medicine vision was, um, was Ibogaine actually. In my experience in the vision, we did a sweat before and called in the ancestors. You know, I was calling my granddad and my dad. And in the Ibogaine vision, like, you know, just there was a lot, it was really a lot about my dad and reconciling with my dad, but also with my granddad, you kind of going through a judgment day experience of, of a lot of stuff in life and, and just kind of releasing. But at one point I'm in my childhood home den. And then at one point there's like this image of my dad. Uh, he's like in his coat, he coached me in soccer like every year of his life. And he had this expression, this kind of ecstatic expression. He's kind of amused, kind of funny, like, you know, whatever is funny, you know, but like, charge, just go get it, son, you know? And, and it's like, Spirit World, like, okay, just pay attention like, right here. And it's like, you know, I was watching my dad and he's got this World War II collection behind him. And I'm just there and I'm just realizing like, wow, you know, just appreciating him and like just the Phoenix, like that just out of the ashes of, of, of the Holocaust and, and my granddad and this like terrible childhood that made this beautiful life for his family and for me, my brother, my sister, along with my mom. Yeah, I'm just like standing in and getting this, this mega love, this is mega blessing from my dad. And then a little later in experience, uh, I'm in low earth orbit and it's like, are the activists and artists going to fucking win? Are we going to do it? It's like Trump and the fucking forces of darkness and not just Trump, but just the fucking machine and all the fucking horribleness. Are we going to make it, you know, as a planet and like are all these life artists and activists and, you know since we're engaged and then i'm just feeling like all these like interdimensional entities like just kind of plugging in to help in subtle ways and there's my granddad just smiling dr bronner's just kind of smiling over there and at a certain point like there's just like 
peace on earth, like this golden light that like, breaks out, like, like on the whole planet, which was my granddad's, you know, for him. I mean, the label is all about that, you know, like, like unite the spaceship earth, you know. And so anyways, so I think, yeah, uh, for cosmic engagement officer, like, so I can kind of get into those kind of shamanic realms and then also really appreciate, you know, my granddad's vision and passion for, yeah. What does the future for Dr. Bronner's The Business hold? Where do you see it going? Well, we got some really exciting new projects and products, I guess some of which I'm not supposed to talk about, but continue to grow. I mean, COVID, we were in the fortunate position of being an essential business, making soap and sanitizer that everyone needs. So we've had an incredible year, grew almost 50% to the benefit of all the campaigns we're supporting. And, uh, you know, our business model is a five-time uh, cap. We have a five, five to one cap on executive compensation and all profits we don't need for the business go to our causes and charities. You know, we've been involved in like a lot of the cannabis campaigns and minimum wage fights, GMO labeling fights in the ballot measure and are getting really good at it and just understanding it as a tool. So being able to support more and more ballot measure campaigns, you know, a challenge we're facing now is like, oh, now we're second to third shifting. We're buying a new building. So all of a sudden, like, you know, like this all one vibration, very family. We just got to like be working extra hard to make sure we keep that vibration kind of going as we grow. I've had the privilege of interviewing some incredible people on this podcast over the last few months about psychedelics and how their experience with psychedelics have altered the course of their lives. And the conversation that I had with David couldn't be a more fitting end to the podcast for 2020, a year that many people have described as the Annus Horribilis. I don't know about you, but David's vivid recollections of his psychedelic experiences and how they have been so foundational to the evolution of his life pulled me in. He is, in many ways, a shining example of how psychedelic experiences can add wonderful dynamics to our lives and our direction. From inspiration, to healing, to helping us find our paths in relationships, careers, and our purpose in life. As Tom Robbins says, what have you ever risked have you ever risked disapproval? Have you ever risked economic security? Have you ever risked a belief? I see nothing particularly courageous about risking one's life. So you lose it. You go to your hero's heaven and everything is milk and honey till the end of time, right? You get your reward and suffer no earthly consequences. That's not courage. Real courage is risking something that might force you to rethink your thoughts and suffer change and stretch consciousness. Real courage is risking one's cliches. David is a perfect example of that ideal. Speaking of which, you you were extremely instrumental in, in Measure 109 with Tom and Cherie. How did you get involved with that? And and what do you see as, as the future? I know when we spoke last time, you mentioned that uh, you see a couple other states or getting involved in a couple other states to push a, push agendas around psychedelics and decriminalization or, or legalization. So we'd just love to hear how you got involved with 109 and then uh, what you see the future over the next couple of years being. You know, I think, first of all, I mean, I do support, you know, decriminalization and access to medicine, uh, however we may see fit as far as in the home or out in the forest or at a concert or whatever, but also recognizing these are very powerful medicines and 
especially for psychedelically naive people, that we really need safe, well-structured access and that the therapeutic container, um, even for psychonauts, I think, like myself, uh, it's a whole different game when you do high dose in a very controlled way, very intentionally going inward and really releasing into your experience. And that's what the clinical trials at John Hopkins and UCLA and NYU, I mean, they're all, you know, this, this therapeutic container, eyes closed with music, set and setting optimized for therapeutic outcomes and mystical, spiritual breakthroughs is crucial. And Tom and Shree, their, their insight was that the medical pharma, I mean, we all hugely support that. I'm on the board of MAPS. We, we want to see MDMA-assisted therapy and psilocybin-assisted therapy come through. But that's going to be pretty limited as far as accessing to people with qualifying diagnoses of treatment-resistant PTSD or treatment-resistant depression. So how do we enable access for all adults who can safely benefit? Because we're all struggling with the dilemmas of life. We're all on the spectrum of everything. And, uh, you know, have professional standards, have training programs. And I think that's really the most crucial model to introduce into the culture right now. So we feel like Measure 109 is like the most crucial model to really bring psychedelic healing to the masses. I was a little bit shocked when Decrim Nature came out and opposed Measure 109. To me, it seemed patently absurd to be opposing something that probably had a you know, very strong chance of passing, which was not necessarily totally aligned with the Decrim Nature movement, but seemed like a general step in the right direction. Curious to know if you had any thoughts uh, around that. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, it's, um, how do you say, it? don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And and I mean, for me, I mean, it was relatively perfect. I mean, it's just like not any one measure is going to do everything. And there was a decriminalizing component, the original 109, but because of the Measure 110 coalition, that was dropped and not to have like, how do you say, uh, interference with the 110 campaign and let them have a clean conversation around decriminalization with the, with the electorate. There were higher cutoffs and there is room to enact via Portland City Council or ballot measure, you know, a ceremonial healing kind of piece of it. But yeah, it's like, just because you didn't get like that one piece doesn't mean you like should be opposing, you know, amazing mega breakthroughs in, in other ways. And, you know, and then, and a lot of it was like, you know, Lexley dishonest and, and disingenuous, you know, saying that like measure 109 is erecting a paywall on psychedelics. It's like, well, there was a therapeutic program. Then we have measure 110, you know, and we were accomplishing pretty much what decrim nature wants because there's a, an historical, uh, how do you say conflict in the drug reform movement? You know, I, I've been part of this for over 20 years and, um, there's a harm reduction wing and that's like measure 110 and it's really focused on ending the drug war and it's about racial justice and and there's a little bit of a how do you say perception on that side of psychedelic advocacy and healing of being elitist and focused on white privilege and not really at all engaged with the actual real problems of the drug war and, and then you know vice versa on the psychedelic healing side there's often like yeah you know psychedelics are awesome they, these are you know categorically different from heroin, meth, and crack, and that shit fucking should be criminal. Right? That's, that's gnarly stuff. You know, and so there's like this kind of historical mistrust and misunderstanding and, and prejudice on either side. And, you know, the truth that each hold is, you know, the harm reduction is like, like we were just saying before, addiction is not a crime. It's a, it's a health problem and underlying traumas that you're medicating and putting someone in jail and making them a second class citizen is not going to help them sort their lives. 
It's also like a, a good reminder, you know, psychedelics and psychedelic therapies can be extremely potent and in, in healing, but just because you've done a lot of psychedelic therapy, uh, doesn't mean that you've necessarily worked through all your personal issues. And, and so even though I think there'd be a lot of woke people within the psychedelic community, egos still play a, a significant part. So it's a, it's a lifelong journey towards kind of personal growth and, and evolution and, uh, you know, it's always good to have a reminder that these are not a panacea. You know, they're going to do a lot, and I think they'll do a lot of good. But they're not the only solution that uh, we need to to bring, uh, you know, a better world around. That's for sure. I mean, that is one of the criticisms of how I call it spiritual bypassing. Is one side of it where unity experiences are incredibly profound, but there's still that's not going to magically change the structural inequalities and, and injustices in society, and like really having to investigate and do the hard policy work and forming and organizing and solidarity building. And psychedelics are incredibly powerful, but they're not the be all end all. And then what you were saying about like just the ego inflation and I've gone through it myself, you know, it can be very ego inflationary. Like you can have these mega, mega experiences that are egoless and non-dual and all that awareness. And then the ego back in there kind of taking credit. Like, wow, that was awesome. I did that. Holy shit. I'm amazing. Yeah, that, that, that's hilarious. What do you see happening like in, in the future? You know, things seem to be happening in, in California. I read an article about uh, some work you're doing in, in Washington State as well. What do you see the next couple of years? Washington is, you know, we've got two coalitions there on the harm reduction side, hopefully that are going to work it out. You've got treatment first and care first. You've got, and everyone agrees on the ultimate end game, which is beyond decriminalization. It's actual safe supply, legal safe supply. Like even like heroin, like a maintenance dose, like a diabetic would manage with insulin until they're ready to kick their habit and get into treatment that just take away all black markets, um, move to a, a full safe supply and just, mitig- just reduce the harms associated with, with drug use and drug addiction. And there's some really difficult things to think through and sort out in that vision, but that's not where the electorate is yet. Um, and, and then within a decriminalization, there's a debate whether or not you have fines or not like, like do you still impose a fine and then there's concern that if you find especially indigent people then you're recriminalizing when they don't pay and in oregon they actually address that by making it failure to pay a fine is not a basis for um, uh, imprisonment or arrest so you know there, there's ways to address this but it, there's basically a you know there's how how far can we go in a given legislative cycle so there's some uh, that's playing out right now in Washington. Then you've got the Criminalized Nature Seattle, which is actually a pretty cool group of people. And eventually also, you know, I think we can definitely start moving an Oregon-style therapeutic program legislatively. That's not yet in the cards in Washington, but that will be. You know, I think there's a lot of states that are primed for a psilocybin program that we can move legislatively. But that's still kind of coming together as far as like kind of formalizing what that organization would look like. And then... California's got Senator Scott Weiner has announced an intention to decriminalize psychedelic medicine. Colorado is going to definitely go in 22. Well, it'll, you know, legislatively or via ballot, um, definitely on the psilocybin side, if not on a more comprehensive kind of drug policy reform. I think there's a chance at some sort of legislative passage in, in California. 
it just seems I don't I don't know enough about the political process in the U.S. It's very complicated to me, <laughs> but it seems particularly complicated um, in in California. So just curious to know your thoughts. Generally, yeah, it's like I would say it's impossible to move to a policy reform legislatively. It's just too spicy and controversial. It's interesting, like just now that we are so far along on the psychedelic renaissance and cannabis is you know integrated as far as it is and non-controversial. I think there's a fighting chance, like more than a fighting chance. Things are changing so rapidly, you know, in, in Canada, things seem to be happening faster and faster. You know, we had the first section 56 exemptions in Canada, giving people palliative patients access to psilocybin therapy. And then last week or two weeks ago, a section 56 exemption was granted to therapists to oversee the psilocybin therapy. And now I don't know if you saw, but uh, on Friday, Health Canada announced that they're amending the regulations to open up the special access program, which is in theory, a more expedited route to approval uh, to include psilocybin and MDMA. So there may be a more uh, direct and less political path to it. You know, the current thinking is this is all just a kind of floating a trial balloon to see what the appetite is in Canada for either broader decriminalization, legalization, or even legalization of all drugs. So it's uh, it's a really exciting time to sort of be witness to this and and, and be involved in, in this emerging conversation. Yeah, Canada is... Uh... Well, you're getting way out there. I mean, legalizing cannabis obviously was a huge step. And Mexico, I guess, maybe legalizing here very soon. You had sent me something you had written a little while ago called Death and Life. And uh, when you mentioned your experience growing up with foam, you know, I just wanted to uh, unpack that a little bit more and, and understand the reformation conversation that uh, you kind of brought up. Yeah. So this was one of, probably one of my most powerful experiences along with ones I already shared. But uh, yeah, I was back in Germany, I guess in 2016, you know, and uh, a founder of Milk and Honey, a Jewish uh, theme camp had gone through our foam experience. So at Burning Man, so 2009 or 2008 about, I was going through a big midlife crisis, I think maybe my third of currently seven so far. You know, and I remember talking to my dad, you know, I'm like, Bob, you know, how'd you do it? You know, how'd you raise a family? And I run a business, do it all, and it's nuts. You know, it's just kind of really spinning. And I remember just when my dad had died, like it was just so overwhelming. We, basically shut down that business and sold off all the foam assets to another special effects house in Hollywood and just concentrated on the soap business. But I was remembering here like 10 years later, like, you know, wow, just remembering all the joy we brought the world, like blasting foam on each other and as kids and just going around and making it snow. And it's just like, like transformative when you blast snow or foam on, a, on the world or snow. I mean, it's like a snow day. It's just like a very ecstatic release. All the usual boundaries are like, you know, blurred and, and I was just remembering that, and I built uh, w- with uh, one of my compatriots here, Bronner, I built a foam machine based on one of my dad's late designs. It was actually for a German hotel in Sri Lanka and, and took it to the burn, you know, just kind of downloading kind of vicariously, just a lot of dead energy and really appreciating it and having really awesome experiences. But the foam was just out of control. I mean, we were just clearing out blocks of people who were coming in because we just had this little 10 by 10 EVAP like totally inadequate uh, gray water system. The next year we built a big tub, like a giant tub with like a graded floor with a uh, tank that would contain all the gray water. And you could pack like 20 people in the tub and blast foam on them. And that evolved eventually into our double plexi shower trailer. So like basically two 40 foot shower trailer 
plexiglass like end to end and we could put 50 people in and just blast foam and it's just and we have this huge dome and and it's super ecstatic and fun and it's like it's big daytime destination at the burn so we have this you know this incredible experience you know people come in they, they you know get all hyped up we got the foamy homies are just a beautiful cast of high vibrating individuals and we're just you know it's all about kind of nudity or how do you say bathing culture that we've lost and just being like cool in your skin and just getting down and and it's, you know, nudity, not ludity. We do a good job of holding the space and keeping it in the right vibration. Got DJs. It's super fun. But this lady, uh, Allie, had, was having a pretty traumatic uh, experience as a Jewish woman, you know, and basically on further research after she reported, like pretty much all Jewish friends and European friends will have an association to the Holocaust. That, like, when the Nazis give... Uh, Jews like a bathing towel and a soap before they to go into the gas chamber to kind of keep them pacified and, and then drop the Zyklon and, 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 and you know most people have like oh wow you know but this is love's answer to all that you know and just kind of like you know kind of process through that association but some get stuck and Allie got really stuck and like the screams of joy she just hearing the fucking screams of horror and like whatever and just had this like horrible horrible experience. And she wrote this really compelling nonfiction essay called Seifa, which is a German word for soap to play on safe and how unsafe she felt and just the whole experience. And this coincided with me, you know, I talked to her and went really deep, explained my whole heritage and past and how this all came to be. And coincidentally, I was going back to Germany and was going to visit my granddad's childhood home. And the German government, like they worked with a, an artist like 10 years ago to put what they call stumble stones. And it's these bronze plaques in the sidewalks that memorialize the date of birth, the date of deportation, the date of murder of all Jewish victims of the, of the Holocaust. And so in Jewish neighborhoods, there's like a lot of these stumble stones. And, you know, I was there and I was like really feeling and seeing my granddad and my, my great aunts like playing as kids in the street and all their stories of how awesome it was. And most of their friends weren't even Jewish and really integrated and you know and feeling the horror as it just went fucking south and just started getting worse and worse and you know this culture they love just turned on them and shredded everything and then but then driving around the corner there's this like beautiful park and these trees and i'm feeling called to it so i go over and i look over and it's a cemetery and it's a german cemetery not a jewish cemetery and i'm feeling this like salute of the dead this feeling of solidarity and salute of the german dead for their jewish brothers and sisters and like feeling like that most of these Germans were, they weren't even Nazis, they were just kids, like just slaughtered in this conflagration that gripped the European peninsula. And like a whole generation on all sides, you know, were just slaughtered in World War One and World War Two, and, 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 and my ex, you know, her family is Chinese. She grew up in Taipei, just feeling her, the whole dislocation, like her dad was like a baby fleeing on the last ship from Mao's army across the Taiwan. And, just mega sacrifice a whole generation just like lived and died and and just feeling that like all that complex like suffering or karmic inheritance of the life force is flowing generationally through and they lived it and suffered it and passed it on did what they could and all of it exercised what they could and gave us some new trauma whatever pass it on and here it all comes up to us and just you know feeling that feeling and then at the burn that year. So Reformation, it was like we were honoring our Hoffman and, and Eleusis, so the, the, the ancient mystery initiation. But this whole underworld theme developed unconsciously. But then 
call and gets like, I got the, I got river sticks. I got river sticks. Like you meant like sticks from the river, but I was hearing river sticks. Well, we're making these chandeliers out of river sticks. And anyway, so Allie comes by. And so I walk over to the shore, like, hey, this is what we're doing. And, you know, we had this whole theme of like, a, kind of, we were all animals. Like our foam chamber was like the ark, like no, a reverse Noah's ark where we put all the heat there to reconcile and restore the relationship with, with animals and nature but i'm walking up on l like as you know with with ali and i showed her like we had a picture of the stumble stones at the entrance and saying like you know for all our guests experiencing generational trauma we hold you in our hearts to move through the moment of present celebration behind and then but i'm walking in i'm like dude is this cool man i don't know but the answers are about the past judgment like whether or not you're fucking doing a cool thing here or not, you know, cause I'm going to walk up with this vision and I'm like, Oh shit. And, and I walk into the dome and it's like after the foaming sun setting and it's like beautiful. And, and instead of like anything heavy or intense, it was this calm radiating joy. Like, and it was the same feeling I was feeling back in Germany, but even more intense. And it was like just the ancestors dancing with me and just like, you go son, like we got you, we're with you. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I mean, like, there's so much in there. I think it's such a beautiful, intense, you know, magical story. But the other cool thing is like, you know, all of that, like you don't need psychedelic drugs to do that. Like psychedelic drugs, like make it so much easier to tap into it. But the it's about the experience. It's not about the drug. Like I felt it. I feel like just like the the magic in, in that experience, not having been there and not being on psychedelics right now. So, you know, there's there's so much, so much there. It's all about the energy, right? Uh, 100%. It's uh yeah, I mean there's so many tech techniques and ways to access and you know psychedelics is just just one of many portals. Thanks, David. I really appreciate your time. I think that's a, an amazing story to end on and I can hear my kids crying downstairs. So it's probably a good time to uh thank you greatly. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for all your work in this sphere. Thank you for being open and vulnerable. Thank you for sharing the stories. It's been a real joy. Right on. Well, thank you, Ronan, and, and sometime I, I look forward to hearing all your stories. While speaking to David, I had four major realizations. First, it's been the central theme of all religion that when you open yourself up to it, and I mean truly open yourself up to it, whether that's through psychedelics or otherwise, the center of everything is light and love. Regardless of our beliefs, by awakening that part of us, we can realize that as living beings, we are more similar than we are different. For David, to get to a place of understanding, he had to move beyond the I am and accept what is. To comprehend the mundane, his imperative became finding ways to continually improve the reality he observed around him. As it's said, funny how we think of romance as always involving two, when the romance of solitude can be ever so much more delicious and intense. Alone, the world offers itself to us freely. To be unmasked, it has no choice. Third, the only thing we can be responsible for is our own emotions. Everyone is on their own path, and sometimes living your truth means that others will be affected along the way. But if you're being true to yourself, it's simply an experience that shapes their path as well as yours. David's divorce is a great example of this reality. Finally, this podcast has worked to create a welcoming and open space for people to share how psychedelics have changed their lives. And David is an excellent example of why these conversations around psychedelics really matter. So I'd like to extend my gratitude to David 
and all of the 24 guests we've connected with this year for joining this space. We're fortunate to be part of this community, and I'm so excited for more field tripping in 2021 and beyond. One thing I know for sure, this trip is just getting started. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious, breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy and produced by Conrad Page. Our researcher is Sharon Bella. Special thanks to Quill, and of course, Many thanks to David for joining me today. To learn more about David, visit drbronner.com. Finally, subscribe to our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at fieldtripping.fm. And thank you for joining us in 2020. Looking forward to an excellent 2021.